This is Planted, a podcast that encourages us to be rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ and established in the faith. Today, Pastor Matt leads us through a discussion about the limited application of Christ's blood and definite atonement. Good day, everyone. This is Pastor Matt Grimm. I'm here once again with Thad Keenel. What's going on, Thad? Hey, Pastor Matt. Uh, let's see. There's lots going on. We uh, have been working our way through these doctrines of Calvinism, the, the tulip that we've been talking about, and... Uh, we're right over hump day on this, I think, on the on the L. We're 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 off to the lip, yeah, of, of the tulip. <laughs> That's right. So we're here with the Planted Podcast, and we have been, uh, you know, we kind of were figuring out season three, and we ended up going on reform doctrines, and we've talked about various things, but we kind of landed here in this this section of this season right now on the tulip, which really. A lot of people will call the doctrines of grace mm-hmm. uh, from the, a, a summary of the doctrines of grace from the Calvinist perspective. And last week we talked about how that arose out of the debate with Arminianism of, of James Arminius and his followers that had um, really written themselves five key areas that they believed that the, the mainstream teaching within the Netherlands of Calvinism was inaccurate. And so they produced these um, their own doctrines. We might say that um, God's choice of human being human beings was conditioned by their foreknowledge. That human depravity was mitigated by God's grace, extended all human beings through this provenient grace idea, and that that a mankind can resist God's grace, which we'll talk about that next week, actually. Um, and then then and then the final week when we get into perseverance and saints, there was also this belief that that you could, you know, we call it losing your salvation or that you could turn away from the faith and become apostate. Um, yeah, and, and so forth. And so so we started walking through the responses to that, which were was not Calvin himself, but rather it was Calvin's disciples living in the Netherlands. Um, and and just, I would say, in some senses, mostly influenced by Calvin, but but also just the, the uh, those other reformers even too would fall in line with that, like John Knox and and others. But but they would probably trace themselves back to Calvin's teachings, and so they started laying out these responses to these um, articles that the Remonstrants had laid out, and so. The, the first one we dealt with two weeks ago was that of total depravity. And just to summarize that, it's a belief not that human beings are as bad as they can be, but instead that we are corrupted to our very core, that through and through every part of us, mind, will, emotions, intellect, everything is impacted by sin. And so as the Westminster Confession of Faith says in, in Article 6 uh, or Chapter 6, Article 4, says, we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to do to all good and wholly inclined to all evil. Again, not as bad as we can be, but inclined to that. Mm-hmm. And so our minds, hearts, and wills are bent towards our own desires apart from God. And that's where we've talked about that before in regards to that really helps us even understanding what repentance is. It's right, it's the turning away from ourselves to God because our natural bent in the sinful man and the old man 
who's dead in sin is apart from God. Yeah. Sometimes people will push back and say, you know, I think people are born generally good. You know, I think they're, I think they're general, generally good people. And I would respond to that and ask them, um, and I've done this a number of times. It's kind of funny. I was like, so you're telling me you had to teach your children how to be bad. And it's right. like, no, you're always correcting them, right? <laughs> yeah. You know you know their natural disposition is to be in rebellion against you, and yeah. that's how we are. Then it's all because of the fall. That's right, yeah. And so then the, that next letter after the T in, in TULIP of total depravity is you, unconditional election. And as we've talked about really in all these doctrines and even going back to God's you know, eternal degree and his eternal decree and his need to bring Jesus and his sovereignty in all things. You know, this issue keeps coming up, which we just talked about in, 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 in mankind, is there's nothing within humans that, um, that God looks at ahead of time, this foreseen faith or any kind of goodness or preference on his part that says, oh, there's something about Thad or Matt or Joe or Kim or Susie that says, Oh, I like them, and there's something worthy about them. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna call them. I'm gonna choose them. Um, but rather, um, we are all deserving of God's wrath. And so, when God does elect, and we did look at like Exodus 19, and then First Peter 2, that this choice was made out of God's own freedom. That He call, He chose a people for Himself, not conditioned on anything that He saw, but purely of His own free choice. And so, um, so that is that it's God, His good pleasure as King that that brings that about. And so, uh, that this now brings us to the L in Tulip, which is uh, limited atonement. And so, we're going to you know get into some various issues regarding that um, that relate to sometimes the language that's used um, and and looking at the. Um, that word limited, I, I think we'll, we'll get into, there's other ways to talk about that word, which we'll, we'll, we'll get to. But just to, to kind of give an overview is that, um, you know, not only did God choose a people to be saved, but he secured their salvation by sending Jesus to die a sinner's death in their place. That um, it was, so what we're getting at a little bit is with this idea is what was God's intent in the sacrifice of Christ? Is it that his sacrifice pays for the sins of every individual that has ever lived, okay, which would be universalism, which we'll get into a little bit, um, or is it for a particular group of people? Mm-hmm. And if so, who determines that particular group? Is it, is it God or is something then left up to man right. within that, which, which you know, gets into some of our other conversations? But... Um, what we want to start looking at a little bit is the, it's kind of what we say, the scope of the atonement. So when Jesus died on the cross for sins, what was paid for? So the question I seem to ask is, and and maybe I'm jumping ahead, but this is where my mind's going right now, is if every person's sins have been paid for in the cross— what is God holding against people? Right. That, that's that's my question. And then, and often people would the response I get from people who struggle with the L. You know, some people. There's a lot of people who will t- call themselves four point Calvinists, right? And usually mm-hmm. it's the L right. that they're that they're struggling with. And and or then if you even just go to you know a an Arminian uh, viewpoint, 
the the issue then becomes um, with with this scope. They'll say, well, the issue is they don't have faith. So he's holding he's, it's it's unbelief. And so my question, written response back to that, is unbelief not sin? Mm. Because if right. so, then if if God's holding their unbelief against them, then there is a you've already placed a limit on the atonement that that, that Jesus did not pay for the sin of unbelief; he paid for every other sin, right? Right. Uh, and so, so I, I bring that up just to say that unless you're going to be a universalist. And a universalist is that everyone will will spend eternity in in heaven and in, in the new heavens and the new earth with the Lord. Which Jesus seemed to speak pretty significantly that there is a hell. He I think he spoke about hell more than anybody else. Yeah, right. um, that uh, if you're not a universalist, you are placing some kind of limit on 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 Jesus' sacrifice. Right. And so, um, and we would say that in the camps um, with our Arminian friends mm-hmm. as well as. The reform side of things that um, both parties would agree there's there is a limit to it, right? We just got to define what that limit is. So right. that's where that's where we're going to go next. But um, before we do that, maybe it makes some sense because we're we're using the word limited atonement, and so we we mentioned there's a limit to something, but maybe not everybody out there understands what atonement means. Yeah. So yeah. maybe we could talk about that for a second. So. What does atonement mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, you, it, if you break it down, you can use it's at one month to some, and so it, it is. It is the. Um, it, it has a, actually has various aspects to it. I mean, it, there's it, when the Bible talks about things like redemption and reconciliation and justification, all those things are wrapped up it, in the atonement, but but basically. The idea comes down to um, God uh, having to make amends for a wrong, Uh, because because what that does is that brings a division, it brings a divide, it brings that 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 unreconciliation, it brings about a um, a break in the covenant of the between God and man, and God is it's that act of needing to restore that. Now the word itself, uh, do you have a do you have something there for us uh, in terms of, of that? Because I I'm Well the first time that I remember looking that up for for that um, word atonement, I decided to do a little word search mm-hmm. and it and it popped up in Genesis of all things um, in regard to Noah when he was building the ark. And it says to um, when you finish building the ark, be sure to cover it on the inside and the outside with pitch and the word to cover and the word for pitch are both the same Hebrew word. And the word is the word that we translate to atone. Mm-hmm. It means to cover. So um, the, when we think of the physical aspect of Christ's blood covering our sins, that in a sense is a, the atonement, right? It's covering our sins. So we're washed in his blood through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ um, which is also has um, connections with um, the expiation and the propitiation for sins, which you've uh, brought about in the past, where expiation is the removal of sins, right? Yeah. And the propitiation, I like to use the word satisfy, but you use a different term, and I'm trying to think of that as a swage or something like that. Um, 
Yeah, well, the wrath it, of God. It, it kind of yeah, it assuages the wrath of God. It re, it's removing the anger of God. So the expiation really has to do, I would say, a little bit more that language of purification of the 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 removal of guilt. You know that that is there, so that the guilt that is that separates us, that the removal of that, but then. You, so there's not just the, it's almost, I don't know if I want to use the word forensic here, because I don't know if that's exactly what's happened, but there's the, but there's a, there's a literal thing that, that you're guilty because of. It's like you're dirty, you know, mm-hmm. and the, the expiation is going to, it's going to remove that, that thing. But there's still the relational aspect of that. So even though you have the, you know, the, you can be declared not guilty in that sense uh, from a legal standpoint, or, um, you know, there's the, the um like there's no more liability yeah right but that's still just because the liability hasn't been taken care of but then there's still that personal relationship so if you think of even like of a I think of liability I think of lending like a banker that lends you money right and let's say you fa- default on the loan right well you can go to bankruptcy court and the court can declare okay there's no more liability on your part but then what if that banker was a personal friend of yours and <laughs> and and it, it hurt his bottom line and he got demoted because you didn't repay your loan mm. he lost his job i mean there's a there's that person so that has to be dealt with the relational aspect has to be dealt with and i think that's what propitiation is that god cannot be indifferent or complacent towards those who violate his law and he's justly angry and so that propitiation it assuages god's wrath it 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 sets it, it his righteous anger against sin has to be dealt with, and so the atonement deals with that as well. Okay, so in the atonement, um, we have Christ's blood covering our sins, mm-hmm. right? Also making reconciliation yes. for us uh, for our relationship, right? And it satisfies God's justice. So, yes. so in that summary, and we can look, you know, in the Old Testament, one of the feast days was the Day of Atonement, where they brought in these two goats. Yeah, that's that word Kippur yeah. is used, right? That's yeah. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, right? Right. right. And so, and one of those goats is sacrificed uh, to satisfy God's wrath, and the other one carries away, removes the sins, and is taken yeah. out to the wilderness, right? right? So there's a that's all in the imagery of of that feast day. But anyway, yeah. Um, I think that's a, a good definition of what that means to atone. So now when we're talking about this um, atoning work of God um, being limited, it's really who is Christ's blood applied to and how does that work? Yes. So thank you. And, and that's really the, the becomes the issue um, because uh, as, we, as we look at this, does the language of Scripture communicate that everyone's sins are atoned for? Or does it communicate a, a particularity or a definiteness and a definiteness to, it, to this, which also then can relate to um, efficacy, the effectiveness of the atonement? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so let me just walk down these dominoes for a minute, and then we'll get into we'll get into some scripture references and some of the language and go tear it apart. But if if God, if in the atonement, everyone sins are paid for, okay, then but not everyone is saved. Then there is an indefiniteness 
in that and an ineffectiveness in Christ's sacrifice, potentially. That it's, um, uh, and so it, is that how God is working? Mm. Um, is God, so what some people will say is God is self-limiting in that sense, that God has chosen to take this risk, make this available, knowing some will choose and some will not. And, uh, and so that's, that's God's divine prerogative. So we're not um, limiting, lim- limiting um, the value of Christ's blood uh, to a point, but we're talking more about the sufficiency of, of that or no. Well, well, no, but, well, I think, I think I'm trying to talk more even about the efficiency, the efficiency, the, the effectiveness. Okay. And so what, what, cause what some people would say, even people on both sides of this can sometimes use this same language of, of, um, of, of uh, sufficiency, um, and, and, and efficiency. So, um, I think even, um, like, a. a a Roman Catholic view of this would could use this language in the sense that the Christ's death is sufficient for all, um, but efficient for some, or efficient for the elect. And and I would agree with that statement. But part of it is how do you interpret that, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it, because the they the question is what is the usefulness of Jesus' death on the cross? Is it um, did he did he pay for Thad's sins or didn't he? Mm-hmm. One response is yes, he did, and 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 you are part of that particular atonement because you are one of the elect, um, and and so therefore, as because God chose you, and when he died on the cross, your your sins, all your sins, even your previous unbelief, <laughs> right, right, is forgiven. Um, where the other side would say, well, no, he paid for everyone's sins, but that is not, that atonement's not applied to you until you believe. Mm-hmm. And then and when you believe, um, that's, that's when the atonement becomes effective uh, or insufficient even. So before that, at some point, it was insufficient until you appropriate that. Mm-hmm. I gotcha. Okay. And so... So the question is um, that which sounds reasonable. That sounds reasonable. The question is: Is that what the scriptures are communicating? Because while it may sound reasonable, um, and it may even it have a certain logic to it when it comes to talking about faith and believing and and you know repent, uh, believe, repent, and and you'll be saved, right? You know um, all that all that kind of stuff. But the question is: Is that the language of scripture? Or is it saying that there is that that atone that that is applied to a particular people with a definite result that is absolutely effective? That's the that's the issue. Okay. All right. So, so we got we got to wrestle through the scriptures yeah. on that. Okay. So so um so let's 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 deal first with this the fact that the atonement is intrinsically efficacious. Um, that it is um, the act itself is truly effective, um, and uh, the redemption um, is saving accomplishment by payment of that necessary ransom price that we talked about. Uh, and so, Christ redeemed us by His blood. He obtained eternal redemption for us. He gave Himself for us to redeem us. Um, 
look at Revelation 5.9, Hebrews 9.12, um, Titus 2.4. I'm not going not gonna to read all those references to you, but just look those up because that, that's what that's communicating here. So um, I do want us to look at Romans 5.9-10 um, as, it, as it talks about this, this reconciliation, and then also this propitiation from 1 John 2, 2 and, and 1 John 4. So um, if we go to Romans uh, 5... And and look at this. Uh, I'll even let's because this is this is one of those passages that is probably familiar with people. Sure. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna and we've we've talked about it before. Um, but I, I'll start. Uh, I want to start back up in verse six. Actually, it says for while we were still helpless, which gets back to the unconditional <laughs> election <laughs> right. element and and so forth. Um, uh, and the total depravity. We were helpless. There's nothing we could do to help ourselves. You, you, you used to pass the idea of the lifesaver, right? You're drowning, and is God throwing us a lifesaver, right? That we then grab onto, or uh, you know, or are we actually dead in the water, yeah. and He's snatching us up out of it and breathing new life into us, right? You right. Know? Yep. Uh, so we're helpless. Uh, Yet at the proper time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 7, for only rarely will someone die on behalf of a righteous person, for on behalf of a good person, possibly someone might even dare to die. But 8, verse 8, but God, again, that but God, Mm -hmm. some of the best words in in all of Scripture, but God demonstrates his own love for us. And while we were still sinners, not while we had foreseen faith, not while we had other things, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then what does that accomplish? It says, therefore, by much more, because we have been declared righteous now by his blood, we will be saved through him from the wrath. I'm reading, this is the um, Lexham English Bible. So um, I don't know if you have the ESV in front of you. If I'm looking at New King James right now, okay. but I also have Lexham, which is. Okay, so the New King James, I don't know if, if there's wording in there that you want to throw out to change that. But the point is, is that. In, in verse 9, it says, we have been declared righteous by his blood. Mm-hmm. That it's, that's a definite statement of um, in declaration by God. Right. You know, so there's, there's a, a um, that this sacrifice that he made was effective and definite. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were, we were reconciled through death by his son, by much more having been reconciled, we'll be saved by his life. So, um there, there is a um, just reconciliation that we were talking about of the atonement is accomplished. There's, there's, uh, and so, uh, yeah. The the language does, in that sense, seem particular for um, for the the people that that are declared. It does, and it also describes the position of us before we were saved in our dead spiritual position that we um we we were facing the wrath of God right, right. and so what what assuages that that assuages that death or that wrath i mean mm-hmm. nothing but the blood of Christ which is what justifies us that's what brings reconciliation to us right it's that justification justification that that um presents us righteous before God. Right. And, right. and that's all by Christ's blood as, as you were just saying. Right. Yeah. So if, if we, now, um, if we go then to first John two, um, 
it's going to bring us into an interesting discussion because we have this language, but then we also have language of the whole world that starts getting entered in here. And so, which, which makes us say, we have to understand what that means. So in 1 John 2, it says, My little children, I'm writing these things in order that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and he is the propitiation for our sins. And then it says, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Right. So we're going to get to the whole world here in a minute, but let's just look to the language of he is the propitiation for our sins. That the um, or you know the the, the um, sub translations might have expiation there. The, thought, the, what does King I, James have? It has propitiation. I think the English version does have. The, okay. Uh, um, let me just go over. It's, it. Yeah. So um, the uh, no, it's propitiation. Maybe it's okay, the NASB. It or I think the NIV might have atoning sacrifice. Okay. So it actually does take that idea and applies that ato- the atonement. Language there, right. the atonement. I do remember seeing expiation somewhere, and I can't okay. remember, maybe NASB or something, yeah. but same. I mean, it's right. It's, We're it's dealing speaking with of the same event. It is, you know, he is the, he's the atonement. He, you know, he is the, and it says, you know, so if that, if he is that for our sins, then, uh, Again, we're we're getting here just to the efficacy that it's that it's efficacious that it you know that it, it's accomplished. So, um, but then it does go on to say, but also for the sins of the whole world, and so we have to we have to deal with that. If if it is particular, uh, and, and you know, with the word limited, I mean, now it's the whole world. What does? How do we understand? the whole world language, okay? Well, th- this is a big rabbit trail that we're not going to go all the way down, but John himself in his Gospels and in his epistles uses the word world in various ways. Uh, he can use it to, to talk about just the cosmos in general. He can use it to talk about the world systems that are set against God, which he often does. Right. Um, or he can or he can use it to talk about um, the whole people groups right. as well. By the way, I'm just going to jump in right now, and I never yeah. told you this before, but I wrote a, I wrote a paper, and maybe it's three or four pages long, and it describes all those uses of the word world oh, okay. used by John. Yeah. And so I'll put it in the show notes. Okay, great. And they can link to it and just take a look at it, because once you see that, you're like, oh, yeah, I've got right. to be careful of the context here. Yeah, right? yeah, right. And so uh, just to quickly wrap this up, that the... We would take this to see this this the sins of the whole world to be inclusive language, but not universal language, in the sense of it's inclusive of every people group of the world. In that sense, universal, Catholic, which is the word we get from. But that doesn't necessarily have to mean every single person, mm-hmm. right? And so if the, you know, if the— um, Well, it goes back to what you were saying earlier. If indeed we're dealing with the satisfaction of sins— or the removal of sins for the entire world, then nobody can die. That leaves you with universalism, right? And nobody that's orthodox is going to say that, right? On both sides right. of the camp that we're right. that we're arguing with right now. So, so, but now we have to further define that. And I think we might have said this last week that when we are using that word "world," when it's used in these references, it's speaking to people um, of the nations, right? People of yes. every tongue tribe and nation. That's that gospel that goes out to all the world, that general call, so to speak, yes, right? right. Exactly. Uh, exactly. But, and so while within this verse, you have that language of, 
the, that general call to every peoples, there still is the the uh, effect. There's the issue of effectiveness that that seems to be here. That mm-hmm. he is the propitiation for sins. It's not that he can be or could be. You know, it it is it is this definite um, uh, the definiteness uh, in terms of its of its being uh, possible. But then we have to ask the question about. Is there a definite people too that, that that is here? Because there are passages that present the atonement as being for a definite people. Um, uh, Matthew one twenty one, he shall save his people from their sins. Um, right. Uh, so is and so in in Acts twenty twenty eight, God purchased the church. And so, in the one hand, you, is Matthew one twenty one talking just about like maybe Israel? You know that that he came for Israel, but then we also see that this is the offer goes to the nations, which is including the church. Um, but it is, but it's specifically that group of people, right? And so, um, uh, Christ loved and gave Himself for the church, mm-hmm. Ephesians five twenty five. That is not inclu- there, There's an inclusivity in the church in that it includes all the every nation, tongue, and tribe. But it it's not every single person. There is the actual assembly of believers, right? Right. That that is being discussed. So and I think that gets narrowed down even in his verbiage here, because he keeps referencing his audience here as the brethren or beloved. Yes. You know, and so when we see that, that's that's the audience that we're talking about and who this particular message is for. Yeah. Right. Right. And 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 not to go further in this, but we've discussed this before, especially as it relates to John chapter ten. We've used John chapter ten a lot in in the in in that sense of of um, even when it comes to his election and his choosing that there is a there's a particularity to that, right? right sure. And so so this is this is where this um, particular language is then related to that that unconditional election that that we discussed. Well, last just for time. an example, how how this gets narrowed down. If we we are forced to um, use the limitations that the scriptures give us, right? So let's just say in generality, we're using the word all quite often, right? We would maybe understand that perhaps that is speaking of, of everybody when like all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? That's, that's one use of that. But um, when we're dealing with all the world in, in these regards, there's going to be other verses that are going to narrow that down. And you've already mentioned one, but another one is in, in Matthew 26, when Jesus is um, having the last supper with his disciples and he's speaking to them and saying, here's, here's the cup, right? He takes the cup and says, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for not all, but which is shed for many for yes. the remission of sins, right. right? And so that narrows that all down to at least a different group within that. It's a subset, correct? Yeah, and so that right. context, uh, when we look at, and this is when we harmonize the scriptures, uh, narrows down that it's Christ's blood that's shed for many for the remission of sins. And that's and that's going to also help define this this definite atonement, atonement or limited atonement. Yes, yeah. So... Um, That is the issue we have to understand is as Jesus is using this language in the Gospels, as the New Testament writers are talking about a particular indefinite people, um, 
what about what about the other language that's there? So we had the the world language, we have the all language, right? That you have brought up because the the um, the counter argument is well, what about what about the the places where it, it says that you know what about John three sixteen right? For God so loved the world. There's the world language again, which I think we mentioned in a previous podcast, and we we started to bring that up. But um, what about um, you know? The meaning of all or every is does itself need that contextual defining, just like the like world does, right? And so that's the um, does it mean because uh, does all mean all without exception? Does it mean all without distinction? Uh, does it mean uh, you know, or does it does it mean all within the universe of discourse in which it's talking about. So is, is the all, the, the, the whole church, right? Is, is the all, you know, the, the Ephesians that he's writing to at the time, you know, or the, you know, what, what is that? So we, you have to do the work of defining what the all is, just like you do with what the world is. Yeah. Right? And like maybe you were mentioning before we started the show, uh, when we get into um, the second Peter yeah. aspect that we can maybe um, include that when we're dealing with words like all or any yeah. and how that's defined by the context because it's important. But anyway, the the idea is when, when we're doing Bible studies, all of us are responsible to read it with the intention of the writer, mm-hmm. with the intention of what the Holy Spirit's saying to us and in context. Right, you, right. you don't want to just take a verse all by itself and isolate it when there's, there's verses before and after that right. will help us define that people group. Yeah. Yeah. So you went there. So let's just look at Second Peter 3, 9. Now here I have the NIV. Uh, it says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. I'm talking about the, 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 uh, the day. It's actually in the, in the context of, of when, when Jesus is going to return um, and so forth. But uh, in, it says, as some understand it, he's patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Mm-hmm. Or I don't know if some would have, but all would come to repentance, but or the whole everyone language here. So Correct. The, the point is of this is, you know, why is the Lord tarrying? Why is he delaying? Well, he patience. He wants more to come to the faith, you know? And, and, because, and the, the, the here is the desire is that everyone come to repentance. So the first contextual issue we're doing here is this in itself is not dealing with the particularity of the atonement. This verse is actually more talking about God's um, desires um, for things, which is there. It's obviously related, but it's not. It's not. It's not specifically talking about the atonement here. Right. More right? about more about the election, maybe a little bit more about election and calling, right? right. And, and the the efficacy of of the call. Right. Because that, which we might get into in another episode when it comes to the, if we get back to Romans eight and talk about all those who are called are justified, you know, kind of, kind of a thing. Exactly. Right? But that's where, um, that's where we are going to be wrestling with. So the statement is in the King James and new King James mm-hmm. is not, that the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I mean, those are pretty broad terms. Yeah. So we have to be able to work that through. Right. Right. And so we're going to tackle that another time. Yeah, I, I think we will. Yeah, I think we it, that might be worthy of a whole, of a whole other episode. Well, unless unless you can summarize it really easily for us right now. <laughs> I think it's a I think it's probably a five minute spiel, right? Yeah. Because all right, I'll do it. 
I'll do it. No, we can cut it out if we don't like it. Okay. But there's two things that are important here. Um, uh, the Lord's not willing mm-hmm. that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So the first thing is, um, it says that the Lord is not willing. So we have to deal with the will of the Lord. Yes. Right. That's the first thing that we have to tackle. And there's really three primary wills that we need to be cognizant of when we're dealing with the Lord. One of them is his sovereign decreative will where, for example, the Lord wills and decrees that creation happened, that the world came to be right. Mm-hmm. There was nothing that was stopping that. What the, what the Lord decreed is going to happen and what the Lord decrees will absolutely happen. So that's his decreative will. And then his second will uh, would be his will, his prescriptive will, which is like how he feels about his laws. Thou shalt not tell a lie. Thou shalt not steal. Right. That's the will of God. But that's not his decreative will, because if it was his decreative will, then nobody would lie and nobody would steal. Right. So we have we have the ability to lie and the steal. I've proven that time and time again. Right. When I was a kid. But the idea is, so that's a different will of God. The, the command of God is his will. It's his prescriptive will. Then there's the third will of God, which we call the will of disposition. What is the Lord's um, tendency, his emotion, his anthropomorphic feeling towards his creation, right? right? Yeah. Um, and, and that we could say, you know, the Lord loves his people. He loves his creation. And he's not willing to, um, through his disposition— to that they should perish, but that they should come to everlasting life, right? So that's his, that would be his prescriptive will. So the idea is, if we were to look at those three, which one would make the most sense if we were looking at that, if we were dealing with the people group of everybody? Yeah, right. right? And if that was true, um, we know it says not as the creative will, because we also know that not everybody's going to make it. Yeah, It's probably not the prescriptive will, because that's kind of to, to do with his, his general command for obedience and whatnot. Right. But his will of disposition, if we're dealing with everybody, yeah, if he loves everybody kind of the same or whatever, yeah. his will would be that they would um, that they would come to him, right? But that's not, the, that's not all that's in the context here. We mm-hmm. have to find out if the all is defined. Okay. Right? Yeah. And is it? Well, maybe it is. So who is the people group? Well, it says that it's all. Mm-hmm. But what happens if we go back a little bit fur- further in verse 9? The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward you you or us. Mm-hmm. That's a people group. That's not everybody. Otherwise, he would say the Lord is long-suffering toward everyone or he's long-suffering towards all. But we have a distinctive word here, mm-hmm. and so we are forced to the context of that word, correct? Mm-hmm. We have, he's long-suffering towards us. Who's the us? That's the elect, right? Because that's further defined earlier in the chapter. Yeah. And in First Peter and in Second Peter, he's not. So now, would that be his prescriptive will, his will of disposition, or his decreative will? That's where, we're, that's where we end up. So if we're dealing with a particular group of the elect— and the Lord's not willing that they should perish. Well, I think we could force that into the into the decreative will of God. Okay, that's where I would end up on yeah. that. Yeah, um, And uh, you know, there's a lot there, and that might be confusing for more for for a lot of people. But the idea is to still we want to be recognizing the the different wills of God when we're dealing yeah. with it and right. holding tight to the context. Yeah, and and, and so the. 
which I think we can say this does then relate to the what because when we get back to the decretive will of God, that the God does say that it does decree that Jesus life, death, and resurrection, and particularly his death on the cross, did pay for our sins. It did cover our sins. It did. It is the atoning sacrifice. So if that is his decree, then we have to say, um, it, and, and we would say it is effective, then towards <clears throat> whom? Right. Uh, must then be asked as well. Right. And so it, this uh, definiteness of a people, and not everyone, uh, comes back to the comes back to the forefront, right? It does. So since you've gone there, um, and we've been talking about our reform position and comparing it to the Arminian position or or John Wesley's position, which is Arminian mm-hmm. in nature. Um, let me read what the Arminian position is on limited atonement. Okay. It says, their their position says that Christ's death was designed to make salvation possible for all people. Christ's death made salvation possible for everyone, but it did not actually secure or guarantee the salvation of anyone. Fallen man determines whether or not Christ's work will be effective by his faith. Okay. And again... They're at least being consistent with this because right. they believe that foreknowledge is something based on God's foreseen um, knowledge of a faith, right? Yes. So, um, but you can see that they've got Christ dying and making it possible for all people, and but it's only possible, uh, but it did not secure actually or guarantee the salvation of anyone. So I guess that would leave it open if that's possible, if if it's only a potential salvation then it would also have to be theoretically possible that right. Christ died for nobody. Yes. That, that to me, that is in my little brain. <laughs> <laughs> From a logical sense, that to me, ultimately, that is what makes me what people would call me a Calvinist, right? I mean, because the issue is um, the this whole idea of God laying it out there and taking this risk, there is that real possibility that no one could, right? Unless you have the issue of foreseeing faith, which we've already dealt with, right? Mm. But but the, the real possibility, you know, which, again, I'm open to that. If you can show me that in Scripture, right? right. Or, even, or even this period of neutrality that could lead to that, right? Um, I'm open to it, but I just don't see it. Right. But well, I, I would do even, see. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. I just was going to say, you know, I would say that they would, they would jump into that Second Peter three chapter and be able to defend their position, but they wouldn't. They would leave it as everyone without going back and defining it into that. Right, and, and what I'm saying, but even there, the context has to do with God's desire, not right. the efficacy of the act. That's true too. Yeah. That's that's the whole point of the, uh, to me what limited atonement is really about is the efficacy of the act itself. Right. Who did Christ lay his life down for? Right. And if it's for everyone, then why then I would be then the answer is if it's for everyone and it is effective, then I'm a universalist. Right. 
Um, well, we got some passages that are going to help us with that. Yeah. 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 It leaves you with universalism. It doesn't. Right. I, that's yeah. that's my point. I right. mean, and I'm open to correction. Right. But I think when it comes to talking about the effectiveness of the atonement, that it definitely accomplished what it was set out to accomplish, that I don't see it again. It goes back almost in my mind. It's very similar to this neutral. Neutral. There, there's if it's if it was definitely effective, then you're either you either have to be a universalist or a or a um, or or not, right? Mm-hmm. But they'll open up the possibility that well, some could and some couldn't. Then you can't use effective language. Yeah. James R. White says that the only consistent Arminian is a universalist. Yeah. And, I, and I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, by the way, you know, you might be thinking, okay, you guys are reformed. You guys are stacking the deck in your favor. <laughs> you know, I mean, you guys are using verses that you like. Right. And we're trying to be as honest. That's why I'm reading positions from their own quotes, right. you know, to do that. But, well, I, but I have a really good friend that's an Arminian. He's a pastor. And I think what I'm going to try to do is set up a little interview with him and we'll let him speak for yeah, himself yeah. and then we can, we can do it. And, and it's not going to be a debate by any means, but let's see what he has to say. Yeah. And um, I think that'd be a good thing because um, again, uh, we want God's truth to come out. We're, we're not trying to defend us for ourselves out of pride, but we just want to know what God is truly trying to tell us. Right. And that's what, I, cause I have, I have the same thing. I have friends in the same vein, yeah. you know? And so, the, I I want the, we we all desire the same thing. But you're right. I mean, I we brought up First John two two for a reason. We brought up Second Peter three nine for a reason. We are trying to, you know, put those out there that there is this. It, it's not like it's um, there isn't things that cause the question to be asked. You know, of is is limited atonement really really true? Because I think even for People who would be more in in line with the Reformed theology, this is usually the sticking point for most people. Right. There are a lot of what they call a lot of people who would call themselves three and a half or four point Calvinists, <laughs> right? And it's this it's this particular one that they struggle with. Right. I know a lot of I, I know friends of mine who um, are in the dispensational theology camp, right? In the, the in, in went to Dallas Theological Seminary, right? Uh, and and most a lot of them would say they're four point Calvinists, and right. this is this is the one that they that they wrestle with, right? Because and and part of the reason I think so, and for in some ways I say for good reason is because there's a heart of evangelism behind this. Sure. The, the, the desire is, and that's where we go back to the we believe in the general call that the, the, the we're to go and we're to preach the gospel to everyone because sure. we don't know who the elect are, right? That's we, a... you know, and so. Um, and so I think there's the behind this is this heart that is if it isn't for everyone, why am I out there preaching to everyone? Yeah, you know. And, and then there's this there's this heart's desire in our human hearts, just like God in His. You talk about His His desires. You know, it's it's the human desire too. That for those of us who've who've come and seen the light, who, who see Jesus, we're like, we want this for our friends, we want this for our neighbors, we don't want any to be lost either. Right. Right. And if you and, and so if you throw this doctrine of limited atonement out there, you're saying that, hey. Not everyone will be saved. Well, we all agree on that. Mm-hmm. You know, when, you know, except for the universalist, right? right? So the question is, is the, is the why? And we're really, and, and we're saying that um, 
to me, it goes back to the eternal decree is that when God declares that something's going to happen and he is going to make for people self, he's going to, he's the security for which that is going to make that happen. Okay. So with that being said, um, I've already read the Arminian position. I'm going to read the, our, our reform position as well, but let me go back mm-hmm. and, and restate part of the Arminian position again, because you mentioned it as far as how what God secures, right? Yeah. And again, it says that Christ, this is the Arminian position or the Wesleyan position, Christ's death made salvation possible for everyone, but it did not actually secure or guarantee the salvation of anyone. It's fallen man that determines whether or not Christ's work will be effective by his faith. Okay. So, right. so in, just real yep, quick, sure. I throw in there. They would agree. Now, how they define this language would be different than us, but they would, in that, you could say they believe that Christ's death is sufficient for all and efficient for some. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, the question is, how do we distinguish who that efficiency is for? Right. 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 Okay. Right. Which theirs is by the faith of man. Yeah. But the reform position states it this way that Christ's death was designed to actually secure the salvation of all of God's chosen people. We could say God's elect. Christ's death secured and actually accomplished the salvation of all of God's chosen people. God has determined that all for whom Christ sacrificed himself will be saved. So you can you can read that's pretty strict and stern language, right? Yeah. And it's very poignant to what's happening here, but um, it has to do with a particular people, yes, the elect, the chosen of God, and Christ's death um, actually does something. It, it is Christ's death that actually accomplishes salvation for all, all of God's chosen people, right? Right. And so that is a very, you can see the large distinguishing factors between those two views. Yeah. And, and so um, I think it's important for us to see that there is the... There is a we want we would acknowledge the broadness in the offer. That the that that there is a broadness, we could say generationally, ethnically, um, geographically, uh, for the gospel. There mm-hmm. are no limits right. to the offer of the gospel in those things, um, uh, and there so there is this this universality in in that in the offer of the gospel, um, but it is, in its effectiveness, it is particular to a people because what God is applying it um, in, in, a, in a very definite sense. Right, right. So with that, let me um, state what Westminster okay. um, summarizes. Um, and this is just in the summary of Westminster of... Uh, I'm going to say that it's chapter eight of Westminster Confession of Faith. It says that the Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he, through the eternal spirit, once offered up to God, has fully satisfied the justice of his father and purchased not only the reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the father has given him. Yes. And that's the language of John, ten again that, mm-hmm. that we and other places, but sure. but that that we've we've mentioned before. And so um, I just want to read this, a little statement here. It's these are from 
uh, notes of mine from my soteri- soteriology class from Dr. David Jones. What's soteriology? Um, it is the theology of salvation. Salvation. The, the, the theology of salvation. So um, uh, here's what he, in, in, in summarizing some of the, the things that he's been laying out as it, as it relates to particular um, redemption or the particular atonement, is he says, It is biblical to state the atonement in general terms, especially in evangelism. Jesus is the Savior of mankind and the light and life of the world. Strictly speaking, Christ died efficaciously for the elect. Mm -hmm. But it is more helpful in evangelism to speak in general terms because the issue for the sinner is not whether he's numbered among the elect, but whether he believes that the death of the Son of God is the only and most perfect sacrifice and satisfaction for sin and trusts in Christ for the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. Both of these propositions are true. Christ's death is designed to save all who believe, and Christ's death is designed to save all the Father has chosen and given in Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that is the that really is the, I think, where the line gets drawn, is, is the to me is the that effectiveness in that God is has declared that he's going to make a people for himself and he's going to ensure that it happens and he's not leaving it into man's hands right um but he is in his act of doing it he is engaging our wills he is calling us to faith faith and maybe that that's something that we need to spend Another time on it, too, is just talk about the nature of faith, because we talk about we're saved by grace through faith. Mm-hmm. And that faith is, is a means by which God is, is operating and applying. But faith is not the efficacy. Faith is—the surety is not our faith. The surety is God's grace. Mm, that's right. The surety is in Jesus. It's not— how much faith I have, it's whose my faith is in, right? And the faith is in the Lord. It's in his will that it be through the through the atoning work of, of Jesus, and that that work did pay for my sins. Um, and so not not the fact that I not the fact that I believed in it, it was the act itself. Now, in the operation and application of that, God uses faith, Right, that 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 to um, bring about that within me that I can understand my justification and sanctification and 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 all those things. But it, the faith itself was not operative in the atonement. It was Jesus' death on the cross, which was the operating factor of that atonement. And if that's the case, then again, that's where in my mind. I either have to be a universalist or a particular, yeah. <laughs> or a particularist, right? right? Because um, when when God when that person stands before the Lord, um, and, and and we're all guilty of sin, we say, "Did Jesus pay for my sins on the cross, or didn't he?" Um, and, and so, uh, it's not like you stand before the Lord and all of a sudden say, "Oh, I'll take some of that now," <laughs> right? Yeah. That it's a, I'll take I'll take it now too. No, it was it either it happened or it didn't. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's um important for the listener, and that includes us as we're speaking when we're studying the Word of God, that we're paying attention who's being spoken to. 
right? To the context mm-hmm. of that and figuring out what the audience is being spoken to and is there a subset to the to the general gospel, right? And I, and I think I've said that before when I said um, the call that we see in the gospels, the four gospels, there's that general call that's going out to, to everybody. Right. But in the epistles, when that word is used of the call, they're called, it's very particular, right? And so we've got to read that with that lens on. And so there's some summary statements about particular redemption or limited atonement. And I'll, I'll read a couple of them okay. you can comment as we go or whatever. But the first one is that Christ's death is set forth in scripture as that which actually accomplished salvation, not that which merely made salvation possible. That's a good right definition that divides the, the two positions, correct? Right. Yeah. And then number two says that Jesus Christ was sent into the world to save the people whom the father had given him. Oh, so Jesus really lays his death down for a particular people. Is that what we're saying? Yeah. And yeah. all those people are sinners. Right. They are. <laughs> right. So what it says, when, when, like when Paul says, he, Jesus came to save sinners, right, that that's, holds true. <laughs> right. And if you want to look a couple of these verses up, yeah. uh, Pastor Matt's already mentioned these, but yeah. John 6, John 10, of course, is big. Mm-hmm. Um, we've mentioned Ephesians through every episode, I think, but Ephesians 1, 3, yeah. um, uh, all of chapter 1, really 7 and 10, verses 7 and 10. And then um, number three is that Christ's sacrificial and intercessory work as high priest is for those the Father had given him, not for the world. And I mentioned this in his um, in the high priestly prayer in seventeen. I pray, yeah, I pray right. not for the world, but for those whom you've given me. Same, right? Is that is that a parallel statement, or am I stretching on that? Mm-hmm. I, <laughs> I mean, he's laying his life down for his friends. He says, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, we, I don't know how we would not see that language referring to the cross, right? You know, so. And we know that the the cross is the the atoning sacrifice. Yeah, and he says, I also pray for all of those whom you will give me. So he wasn't just talking about his disciples at that time either, right? Yeah. So those are some verses that you could look up. Hebrews 2, verse 17, chapter 3, verse 1, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, and then um, John 17, 20, which I just mentioned. Yeah. Then the fourth summary verse is that Christ's saving work was intended to save a particular people. I think that summarizes what we've already said, but I mean- his saving work was intended as such. Right. It wasn't. It wasn't intended for universalism. Yeah. That's that's weird. But that all has to go back to God's eternal decree, doesn't it? I think so. And and that's the thing. You know, even as I listen to us talk, and we can get passionate because we're we're trying to to help be true to what we see the scripture saying. Is that some of us say, "Oh, but that gosh, that sounds harsh." That that the picture that you're hearing or wanting is is that that God is is somehow not loving of all that 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 we are that you know we're we're this um this exclusivity you know that 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 comes out of this is um somehow mean-spirited or it's um restrictive you know all those things come to mind and it just doesn't seem to fit with our notion of of love and acceptance and 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 certain things and and so what I have to what I when that's is there I have to ask myself is when God is 
is not saying don't love everyone, don't offer the gospel to everyone. We are to, you know. Um, but but also I think we have to say is who is influencing those notions within us? Right. How much is this coming from the world's view of libertarianism, of, of this absolute of, – of the elevating of man's free will above God's will? Uh, because if we go back to the eternal degree, decree and go back to our discussions about the glory of God, right, what the – what the Reformed faith is is really often says it, it rests upon, you know, the five solas, you know, and one of those is the glory, is God's glory alone, right? Um, that, and ultimately, the idea that I often say that it really has to do is how do you view God's sovereignty? Mm, you know, right. does, is God in his sovereign, is, is God truly sovereign over everything or isn't he? Right. And I think, and, and I think, you know, I'm thinking my one particular, you know, a friend who would be more Armenian. He would, he would agree with me on that. He would say he's not disagreeing with God's sovereignty in this, but sure. in, but they would say in His sovereignty, He's allowing for either. Right. Um. But but I would say, but that that there you have a a king who has left open the possibility that none would be saved. Right. Well, and again, we're talking about um, God who decreed for his son to lay his life down for a particular people. Mm-hmm. But again, we're, we're talking um, theology right now. This, this uh, podcast is a particular purpose for those who want to explore the Bible deeper and grow and rich. This is not the message that we're taking out to, to the, the nation as the gospel message, right? We're, right. we're sharing the cross for those to come to faith. You, you mentioned something along those lines earlier, right? right? And so this last summary statement might help that. And I okay. think everybody will agree with this on both sides of our party line here, that those for whom Christ died are an innumerable host from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's just that out of those groups, there's an elect and that's up to God's decree, but the gospel message goes forth yeah. to all. Yeah. And when I say all, I mean all. <laughs> right. And so again, I, I think what we wanna wanna say is that we, Thad and I, and hopefully our church here at Cornerstone, is that we wanna offer that gospel to all. Is and we are gonna preach the gospel. I can't and, remember. What's the EPC stand for? <laughs> Evangelical Presbyterian. Evangelical, church. which is the gospel presentation to all the world, right? Yeah, and, that we are heralds. You know, we are evang- We are to be heralds of the good news. Right. In fact, um, just a Sunday or two ago, how many mission tables were out there? Yeah, we, uh, we, I think we had uh, close to 50 missionaries represented that were able to be here. And we, our church supports over 100 mm. that we, have, we are partnering with all across the world, all across this, this country and, and, and the world that are out there sharing the gospel. Right. So a good deal of our, and and a good deal of our budget is set there to do exactly that, to proclaim the gospel to people from every tongue, tribe and nation. And so, so the notion of, of this particularity that we're talking about, it is looking at as those who have received this message and accepted it and trying to understand the God's, effectiveness mm-hmm. in this. And really, it, it, it does say that we are so confident in, in, in what this doctrine is helping us do. Ultimately, I think we're going to see this as it comes out in the I and the P of TULIP, 
right? That they're related, this irresistible grace and this perseverance of the saints. And it really, to me, it really shows itself in the perseverance of the saint, because once you open the door in, in limited, in, in this, in the atonement to leaving it into the effectiveness of it has to do with your faith, right? Right then the security of it also has to do with your faith. It's not in, in Christ. Right. And so that which God started um, in some sense can be thwarted too. Yeah, and, and that's and something we'll talk about in a it, couple episodes. Yeah, right? yeah exactly. So, um, so anyway, uh, I, think, I think we need to wrap things up uh, uh, today as we, as we uh, want to keep moving forward. Because I think the other thing that, that as, as we do this, that, We'll probably keep coming up in which we maybe we need to even get some more definition even to what faith is, sure, right? Sure. Because I think that that will show itself in the irresistible grace category, but it also comes down to this whole idea of the those who are called, um, and so which relates to all of, of this as well. So um, I ho- hope you've this has stimulated some thought in you. Again, we've laid it out there a couple times. I don't know if we've put it in the show notes or not. Again, but I think my email. Has, has hopefully has been out there in the show notes that you can email me questions and if we do get questions you know we, we would like to to address uh, some of those as well uh, and so we're going to keep going with tulip next time and, and talk about um, the irresistible grace of god sounds good all right have a good day everybody please join us next time as we look at the subject of god's love as it is manifest in irresistible grace. Planet is a Cornerstone EPC production, connecting to God, one another, and the world through the love of Jesus. More information can be found at cornerstonebrighton.com.